Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 117, David Lagnato, Explaining the Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Dave Langyada. Dave is a professor of cognitive and decision sciences at University College London. His research interests are in human learning and decision-making, particularly the role of causal models in legal reasoning. Our podcast today features Dave's new book, Explaining the Evidence, which was recently released by Cambridge University Press. In it, Dave talks about how people reason about and understand the world through the use of causal models. He discusses the dangers and pitfalls, as well as the strengths of causal thinking. He also proposes the use of causal Bayesnets, which are formal graphical causal models, as a way of helping us to evaluate our decision-making in a more critical way. As you might expect, explaining the evidence covers an enormous amount of ground in psychology, law, and statistics. I hope, though, that my interview with Dave will give you a taste of this important and thought-provoking new book. Dave, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on here. There's obviously a lot going on in your book. I want to start with your subtitle, which is How the Mind Investigates the World. You talk a lot about causal models in the book. Can you give us a basic conceptual introduction to causal modeling and why it's important to how people think about the world? Yes, I mean, that's definitely a central concept in the book. The key idea is that a causal model is a way to represent and reason about a causal system, and both a physical system or it could be a social system, and often in the legal context, it's a social system and a physical system. And the thing about causal models is they aim to capture the critical causal relations between variables that interest us and also perhaps help us to discover new factors. And they go beyond describing what we observe, and they allow us to predict and diagnose, and we can answer questions like, if this is happening, what else do we expect would be happening? Or if this has happened, what were the causes? And also potentially to address what if questions like, well, suppose he'd done this rather than that, what would we expect? And these are critical questions to allow us to plan and act and also explain what's happening around us. And just as an example, I start the book with a case of where there's a dead body found at the foot of a cliff. And immediately one generates different possible causes. Did she fall or she jumped or perhaps she was pushed? And then we might even go further and think, well, why would someone push someone from a cliff? And all these kinds of things. And as we receive more information, we update and expand our causal models, building some kind of explanation for the evidence we see. And really, I would argue that these kind of causal mental models are fundamental to human cognition, and they allow us to make sense of the world, to predict and explain the world, and sometimes to control it, well, to some extent anyway. So a big theme in the book is that causal thinking has both upsides and downsides. 
you argue that in many ways that the literature often focuses a bit too much on the downsides. But first, let's review and get some of those downsides on the table. What are the classic dangers in the way that people often do causal modeling? Right. So we have a natural propensity, I would argue, to come up with causal explanations, even if we have very little or, or even no evidence. So this is a strength and also a weakness. So we can jump to conclusions. And then once we've got some kind of claim, let's say in the cliff death example, the deceased had an unpleasant boyfriend. And once he enters the frame, we're very quick to think that he might have been involved in her death in some way. And we can kind of proceed with a causally linking him to the crime or the potential crime in a way that often surpasses any evidence that we may have. And there are well-known fallacies where people assume a causal link merely on the basis of correlated evidence or correlated data. And so this is often seen as a danger and highlighted as a reason we should avoid causal thinking. Despite those dangers, you also talk a lot about how causal modeling is important, and that is to say that it's both powerful and practical as a way of reasoning. And so how so? Right. Yeah, just to reiterate that, I don't see it as a, just a shortcut rule of thumb in the way a heuristic that we use and it can just lead to biases. I would argue that actually causal thinking is, is just fundamental. It's like the fabric of thought itself. It's true that sometimes we might need to simplify the world in order to get a causal model and to make progress, and that might lead to more approximate or even biased inference. But the point is, it's not just like one rule of thumb we use, it's the very way we think about the world and try and make sense of it. Yes, yeah, so it's not that we're optimal causal reasoners. We often have to simplify our models. I mean, we're faced with very complex situations we need to simplify, but it's a kind of rational trade-off, if you like. So however crude our models might be, they allow us to get started in the process of inference and they give us a suite of inferential capabilities like allowing us to predict and explain and engage in what-if reasoning. And actually, sometimes having a simple, simple model is actually better than an overcomplicated model and it will allow us to focus our efforts in the best way. Yeah, and that's one thing that I really liked a lot about the presentation. It harkens back to some of the statistical modeling that, that I'm familiar with, which is that oftentimes we think that complicated and extremely detailed is better. And that's not always true in statistical modeling, not only because sometimes you don't have the data, but also that the model is just not as good when it's like that. And I think that's effectively what you're saying also about the way that we do causal modeling, that the simplification is a practical one for sure, but also that it could actually result in better models. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's not just that we're constrained to be simple. Sometimes simple is better. And it allows us to process things not just more efficiently, but actually we can cut out irrelevant detail. If I'm trying to predict what would happen if I knock the cup over, I don't need to worry about the exact positions of all the atoms and molecules. I need to worry about the position of a cup, and it could be quite a crude view I have on it. And I think this scales up to much more complicated cases when we're trying to deal with other people. When we see other people, we're trying to infer their intentions and motives, and we're not necessarily trying to infer their exact neurophysiology. We try and work and infer the critical things that might drive their behavior. Now, another distinction that you focus on is a difference between explaining the evidence and evaluating those explanations of the evidence. And most critically, I think you argue that as humans, we're actually pretty good at explaining, 
but not so much at evaluating. So can you tell us a little bit more about this distinction and why it's important? Yes, so this is a distinction that I thought about for a while, and then I've seen it in other places and other theorists have brought up similar points. And it seemed to me like we really do have this strength of using maybe minimal evidence to come up with a story or an explanation. And this allows us to then generate new ideas, maybe pursue new paths. And so it's an excellent skill to have. And it's actually something that I think would be very hard for computers to master. Actually, I think that's probably one of the weak points of kind of AIs coming up with genuinely novel explanations for things. So that's a strength. And I think that it kind of, if you like, it gets the motor running in our investigation and it's crucial. But the danger is that we then use this to the expense of careful evaluation of our stories. So it's not enough just that we generate a story. We also want a story that is well evidenced and supported by not just the evidence, but also is better supported than other potential stories. And I think that the danger is that once we have one good explanation or one good story, we're less capable of evaluating other stories or what we don't even necessarily consider them. And so we can develop a one-track process. So in order to evaluate our stories against the evidence, we need to reflect in some ways on the relationship between models and evidence. For one thing, we need to separate out what's an explanation versus what's the evidence. And then we think, well, how good is the evidence? And we need to think about quality of evidence, strength of evidence, all these kinds of aspects. And I think that those evaluative issues don't come as naturally to us. And I think we have to actually potentially force ourselves to think more carefully about evidence. And also, it's extremely demanding to evaluate models against evidence, even for experts. So to firmly draw that into the legal context, you say have the Pennington and Hasty story model, which suggests that legal actors normally construct different stories to explain the evidence. And perhaps we naturally do that, construct these stories but we tend not to be so good at what? It seems like determining which story is better between prosecution and defense and perhaps being just critical in general about the story we adopt. Yeah, I think there's a quite a few things there. So the story construction process is, again, what we seem to be good at, but actually evaluating stories against the evidence and comparing them. I mean, you might have one story that is pretty complete. It seems to cover the evidence well, but it might have a few anomalies compared with maybe the defense story is maybe not as complete, but the bits that it does covers really well. And so often it's very hard to compare across different stories because they might differ in many different ways. And I think that this is a challenge. So it's not so much that people can't do it. It's, just a, it's especially challenging. And I would say that the story model, again, it's, it's, it's a great model for how people try and approach these complex tasks. And I think it really, in some sense, is very insightful about how we use these stories to simplify complex evidence. But it, what it doesn't tell us so much about is how people actually go about the more micro-level stage of evaluating how well the different parts of a story map onto the evidence. And, and this is critical. And just like an extreme example is sometimes there isn't a good story. There is no compelling story. But what happened is just a sequence of unlikely coincidences. This has actually happened quite a few times in well-known miscarriages of justice where a mother, her babies might have died in unfortunate circumstances and there is no story about her murdering them or anything. And so there is the danger of a story propelling itself forwards and people not being able to appropriately evaluate how well that story matches against the evidence. To help with this evaluation process or our weaknesses in evaluation, the later part of your book 
uses graphical models, specifically Bayes nets, to formally represent causal models. And I'm going to leave the technical details of that discussion aside. Our listeners can read about it in the book itself. And instead, I want to talk about them conceptually. So first, tell us a little bit about how Bayes nets might be able to help us evaluate our causal models. Yeah, so I think the thing about Bayes nets is it's a formal tool that represents probabilistic relationships between variables. And then the causal Bayes net adds a bit of richness, makes some causal claims, which, which kind of supplements, I think, the Bayes net in, in interesting and important ways. And so one thing that we can do is we can try and translate our mental causal models of situations into the formal Bayes net apparatus. We can take advantage of these formal aspects of the Bayes net whereby you can assess things like relevance and strength of evidence in a logically consistent way. I mean, in a way, a Bayes net is just a generalization of the rules of probability. So it's not that we can avoid making assumptions or making claims, but once we've made those assumptions and claims, we can see what are the probabilistically logical consequences of those. And so I think that in many ways, it's an exploration tool, which allows us to kind of be more explicit about our assumptions and our knowledge, and then see what are the implications of those assumptions and knowledge for what else we can rationally infer. So I see it as an exploration tool rather than something that's going to replace our reasoning. And this also helps when we start scaling up to larger structures with larger bodies of evidence. And something with colleagues, we've developed a method, if you like, which we call legal idiot. They're kind of recurring patterns which seem to repeat many times in many different legal cases. And once you master four or five of these patterns, we've found that you can actually then model most legal cases. And, and it's quite nice. These, these kind of idioms or templates, if you like, are kind of based on causal principles. So we can model let's say, the causes and preconditions of a crime, things like motive, opportunity, character, etc., but also model the effects and consequences of a crime, things like trace evidence, witness reports, etc., etc. And by using this methodology, we can also incorporate and capture witness credibility, the reliability of evidential tests, alternative explanations, the possibility of deception, and all these factors. So as I said, it's not so much about precise probabilistic computations, it's about laying out in an explicit way our knowledge and assumptions and seeing what further inferences and conclusions we can draw, given what we know. So as a statistician, I, of course, very much love this use of graphical models. But I think aside from this data availability problem, which you address well by saying that these are just about looking at the structure as opposed to necessarily doing the quantitative computations. Another practical objection that you talk about in the book, but I'd like to give you a chance to talk about, is technical sophistication. Can we really practically expect legal actors, and in particular, lay decision makers, to pick this stuff up? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something that I've been working on for a while now. So an early project we were involved in, which was actually funded by IARPA, looking at how to improve reasoning in intelligence analysts. And we ended up mainly working with lay people, actually. And we had a BaseNet software tool that we taught lay people to use in just a few hours. And they were able to solve very complex probabilistic problems. I mean, we especially designed these problems to make them difficult. And we were really impressed with how well people could solve these problems using the software that they'd literally just learned in a few hours, as compared with giving them more generic probabilistic training. So that was very encouraging. But 
didn't tell us exactly what was going on in terms of how people are improving their reasoning. So in another body of work that I'm involved in, we're actually getting people to tackle legal cases and draw out their models, actually. So that's one thing that we've been doing is getting people to draw the models or build, if you like, build the models. And again, we've been very impressed with not only how people draw really sensible models of crime cases, but also how the act of drawing can actually deepen their quality of their thinking. And again, it's not so much about the precise numbers, it's about the way of thinking and improving your appreciation of alternative explanations, reliability of evidence, all those factors. And plus, it's a visual tool, which I think really helps people to visualize. It's like a map of the evidence. And it kind of resonates with earlier work by people like Wigmore and argumentation approaches. But I think what makes it stand out is not only does it give you a visual way of mapping out complex evidence, but you also have this, if you like, magical tool whereby you can also do computation. So as well as mapping out what you know, you can then do computation to then infer things that you maybe didn't know or you maybe weren't sure about. And again, it's not like just reaching a final number. You could go back and forth. So that's something that I often do when I'm modeling a case. I use my intuition to come up with a case and then I maybe use the computation to draw out some of the consequences of my assumptions. And then sometimes I might go back to the drawing board and think, well, no, these assumptions can't be right. And other times I think, well, actually, these assumptions seem right and they seem to be giving me a very sensible conclusion. So again, it's not like a replacement for our our reasoning. I see it as a way of deepening our reasoning. It's kind of interesting. I can imagine this as being part of perhaps judicial training, maybe some kind of training for jurors. And then you can imagine it being used perhaps in school, so in elementary or secondary education, teaching some of these models as opposed to, say, teaching trigonometry, which has perhaps less widespread possibilities for use. I definitely think that training people at university level, but maybe even before, I think it's a great idea. I've had a few school level students who I've introduced BayesNets to, and they found it really quite enjoyable, actually, (laughs) being able to use the software, come up, draw models. And we've also been using this online software called Loopy, where you can just draw models and get them to run. And they're more like designed for feedback loops, actually. They're quite interesting models, but they're a very natural way of people making explicit their assumptions and trying things out. So I think that as a tool for exploration, but also what's great is it gives you logically and probabilistically consistent inference. So I think that there's loads of things that could be done to improve training. My undergraduate and master's students, I teach them the basics of base nets and they pick it up really quickly. So I'm pretty confident that if we get to people early enough, we can get them to pick up these principles. And at the very least, they will then learn some of the basic principles of probabilistic reasoning and avoid those errors. So that's the least we can do. But I think we can do a lot more and we can get people to think much more deeply about cases and how evidence speaks to different hypotheses, especially when things get a bit more complicated. Final question for you, and I recognize this one's a little bit unfair. So you've written this really comprehensive and sophisticated book, and there's a lot that a scholar can take away from it. But if I take off my scholar hat and put on my regular person hat, there's just a staggering amount of information to internalize. So in my everyday decision-making, if there was one change that I could make or one thing that I should keep in mind, what do you think that should be? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that one of the key themes of the book is this distinction between explaining versus evaluating. So I feel that maybe that would be an important thing to to convey in a way, the idea that we might be able to explain or come up with causal stories to explain evidence. But we really need to bear in mind that we need to evaluate those explanations and, and be aware of our tendency to jump to a causal conclusion or jump to a story when we haven't really scrutinized the quality of the evidence for it. And just taking a day-to-day example now, in the COVID crisis, we often have people who might take a natural flow test and, and have a negative result. And you can't just assume that that means you don't have COVID and you need to think about things like false negatives and your prior chances of exposure, your vaccine status, other risk factors. So you need to evaluate the evidence, not just jump to a conclusion, let's say, that you don't have COVID, for example. That's an everyday example, unfortunately, of the moment. Well, Dave, thanks for taking the time to talk about your really excellent and interdisciplinary book on proof at the end of the day. I really enjoyed our time together and great having you on the show. Thank you so much, Ed, and I really enjoyed your questions. Great to be here. There's much to love about explaining the evidence. The first thing that is sure to strike you is that it's remarkably interdisciplinary in nature. The book is a seamless journey through, and in many ways a blending of, research in psychology, problems in law, and ideas from probability and statistics. And perhaps this is exactly as it should be. Problems of proof are obviously not confined to any single discipline, even though we tend to silo them in that way. And by fitting all of these literatures together, Dave has arrived at a very powerful synthesis. Another aspect of Dave's book that I appreciated was its intensely practical perspective. The causal modeling that we as humans do informally or intuitively isn't perfect, but it's also not garbage. As Dave suggests, we're actually remarkably good at generating causal hypotheses. What we're less good at, or at least what we sometimes forget to do, is evaluate whether those hypotheses are any good. The models we choose are similarly not perfect or perfectly detailed, but there are good and practical reasons for that. Simplifying the models with assumptions makes them more tractable, and it allows us to make good decisions at least most of the time. What we need to be more mindful of, of course, is that there are risks that these simplifications create. And finally, as I mentioned in the interview, I love Bayes nets and other graphical models. These statistical models, though, are often extremely technical and require a lot of data. But here I think Dave's practical approach also shines. What's important for him is not necessarily getting decision makers to generate the correct quantitative answer. The key value in the Bayes nets is in their qualitative logical structure. They can train us how to think better and perhaps provide a tool to help us assess our own internal models. And even if we can't teach lay jurors how to do this on the fly, we can surely teach this to our forensic analysts or our criminal investigators. 
And as the old saying goes, the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. Whether you're technically inclined or not, I highly recommend taking a look at explaining the evidence. I suspect that it'll leave you looking at evidence and the process of proof in a different way. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.